<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, technology, engineering, math, and this week, even coral reefs. Yeah, it's STEM for those of us who remember what a mitochondria is, but not how to spell it. There's like a silent H card. How are you? I'm good. Gillian, how the heck are you? I'm all right. I'm feeling all right. Do we want to talk about where we're individually recording right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. Where are you? Uh, I am in a car. I'm in a Prius. (laughs) (laughs) Because my wife is currently using our office for a meeting. Where are you recording? I am standing in a closet um, that I have turned into a sound booth. I have strung up a beach towel in front of the door with some binder clips and string. Yeah. Very proud of that. Engineering. And I'm feeling great. (laughs) I honestly, I think it's awesome. And the reason I bring it up is I'm like, one, it's amazing that we have the technology to do this from our car and our closet. But also, like, I would love to talk to somebody one day about the acoustics and like Uh the physics of the acoustics. Because the reason I'm recording in my car is I was reading online that cars are good because they're about 60% sound deadening material in the form of sheets and carpets. They're lifted up from the ground and they have an independent suspension system. So they're not subject to like the vibrations that like say a house would be. And things aren't just flat. Like there's lots of different crevices. So you don't just create like waves of sound just bouncing right back at you. I am so impressed with the quality of your internet connection. (laughs) I'm parked such a crazy way. I'm actually parked directly on the other, like the router is just like on the other side of the wall. But if I were to (laughs) zoom out right now, you'd be like, you're parked on the grass. And I'd be like, sure am. (laughs) It's really working. I'm impressed. Thank you. Did you ever try and invent anything when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. I had a tree that I called my invention. It was... Just a tree that had like some wires hanging out of it for no reason. But I was like, oh, this, this is my invention. What about you? (laughs) I once with my cousin went and took little droplets of things from every room in my grandparents' house and said it was a potion. But then it didn't really do anything. Mission failure. (laughs) I remember my grandmother had Pert Plus shampoo do you remember pert plus do it was I green ever and i i tried to tell my mom that i had squeezed juice out of grass <laughs> and that was the 
the green part. I maybe didn't want the adults to know that we were just going around just squeezing Pert Plus um, into a cup. Oh, what about um, at work? Have you had to say any really complex forensic science terms lately? Have you learned anything from scripts? No, it's all been emotion. It's great. It's all words I know how to pronounce, like sad and feel and I don't know. I love it. Do you ever get, sometimes if there's a word in a script that I have a hard time pronouncing, I just develop this mental block around it and my entire focus for it being in the scene is just anticipating saying (laughs) that word and I can't think about anything else? Um, No, I'll tell you a secret. Um, I'm sure that there's actually probably a science behind this, but, oh, you, oh, we both went to CalArts. You went to CalArts? No. Never mind. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) wow, I absolutely thought that was true this entire time. What a time to find out that something you know is not true when you're recording for a podcast. Perfect. Honorary now. You can't, yeah, you have the honorary degree. But I was just going to say we did a lot of gesture work there. So when I don't know how to mm-hmm. pronounce a word and I've learned to, I have a small gesture that I tend to associate with it. So that that way it's like locked in my mind physically and mentally. I try to make it like really small, not like pretending to take off a bowler hat. But, you know, maybe just like <laughs> rubbing my thumb and my finger together. Just something small so that I remember. That's so smart. Thank you. I'm sure, yes, I'm sure a neurologist could talk to us about the principles behind that. Okay, I'm going to try it. Do you want to talk about what's on this week's episode? Yes. So I got a chance to speak with Margaret Wertheim. She's got a background in mathematics, and I've been obsessed with her work for over 10 years now. So Margaret and her twin sister, who's an artist, came together to make this enormous, gorgeous replica of a coral reef, and they use crochet to mimic the unique shapes of the reefs. So the project actually combines geometry with art because a reef is very similar to geometric shapes, but we'll hear more about that from Margaret. And I could not believe how detailed and realistic some of their pieces are. But what really got me was the mission behind Margaret's art. I'm just looking. I just looked up pictures of it. This is incredible. Wow. The colors, the use of yarn, the texture. You really do feel like you're looking at a fantastical version of the Great Barrier Reef. I encourage everyone to look up the crocheted coral reef because it really is something to behold. Just look it up. It looks so so much more imaginative. My imagination was very limited when I thought about what it would be. (laughs) Well, uh, should we take a listen to my interview with Margaret? Yes, please. Thank you so much for being with us, Margaret. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I first became aware of you and your work years ago, and I got a chance to go see the Crocheted Coral Reef in New York. And I was wondering, for the audience that may have never heard of this project, if you could just describe it briefly. I know you've you've spoken <laughs> about it many, many times. So my sister and I started this project about 15 years ago, and what we're doing is we're literally crocheting corals. And so the project is designed to be a crafted art response to the travesty of climate change because we grew up in Brisbane, Australia, which is the state where the Great Barrier Reef is. So like all Australians, we're very aware that the Barrier Reef is dying out. And about 2005 was when scientists began to realise it was disappearing because of global warming. And so we decided to do an art installation as a response to this. And you could say, well, 
why not draw one or paint one? Why crochet a reef? And it turns out there's a very good reason why you should crochet one because with with the technique of crochet, you can form the kind of hyperbolic surfaces that are absolute equivalents of the surfaces that the real living reef creatures are making. Reef creatures for hundreds of millions of years have been making surfaces that are a kind of geometry. Huh. Wow. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that they have connected the principles of hyperbolic geometry to crocheting, which, you know, was an insight that happened before their work. Um, I mean, I still don't entirely understand what hyperbolic geometry is. I was just about (laughs) to ask you. So let me just briefly explain what hyperbolic geometry is. Um, So we all learn geometry at school as the geometry of a flat flat tabletop, a flat that the angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees and that the, you know, the circumference of a circle is 2 pi r. Well, it turns out that those things are only true on a flat piece of paper. If you had a curly piece of paper, and you, you can think here of a lettuce leaf, think, think of a lettuce leaf, which is sort of pretty flat at one end, but then it gets very curly as you go towards the end. Well, that lettuce leaf is actually a different kind of geometry. It's a hyperbolic geometric surface. And if you were to take a marker and and measure the angles of a triangle on a lettuce leaf, they wouldn't add up to 180 degrees. They'd add up to less. And if you were to draw a circle, the the, uh, circumference of a circle would be more than 2 pi r. So there are these other kinds of geometries that exist so we, with our project, are trying to give people insights into the different kinds of geometries and to show them that, in fact, they can learn this really quite sophisticated university-level math through making stuff themselves. As this exhibition has travelled around the world, uh, people in whatever city that you're in have also become involved and started crocheting their own coral reefs. And it feels like engaging the public is fundamental to the work that you are doing. And can you talk about that and why it's important? Yeah, we have, as well as the reefs that my sister and I make, which travel to big museums like the Venice Biennale and the Hayward Gallery in London and the Smithsonian, we have always wanted the project to be a community project. So we invite individual people in to contribute to our project. We've had some absolutely amazing crafters in our work. But the biggest community part of it is we work with citizens in different cities and countries who want to make their own crochet reefs. And at at this point, there have been over 40 of them made and more than 15,000 people around the world have participated. And what's wonderful is that, you know, hundreds of people in a city like Chicago or New York or London um, come together, sometimes up to a 1,000 people, and they we teach them the techniques and they start making their own individual corals. And then at the end, you bring together thousands of these pieces and they get constructed into these giant coral landscapes that are really like these sort of amazing, wild, citizen-generated works of art. How I'm inspired to learn how to crochet. Oh, same. My grandmother tried to teach me how to sew when I was little because she was very good at it. And I just had no interest. And now I feel really frustrated that I didn't take that opportunity to learn how to sew or to learn how to crochet because 
it would be so amazing to be able to contribute to one of these crocheted reefs. Well, it's amazing that Margaret was saying that they teach people how to do this. And then to think that so many people, so many artists spend their whole lives, you know, hoping that their work will be shown, will be valued to be in a museum. And Margaret and her sister are giving people the opportunity to be in a museum. That's incredible. That is amazing. That is such a good point. Nope, I don't have anything to add to that. That was a beautiful point. (laughs) One of the reasons we wanted to do this as a community project is, is two things. One is that art is almost always seen in our society as something that's produced by the single individual genius, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, um, Picasso, um, Olafar Eliasson. And this, this project that we do is a kind of completely different model of art making. It basically says lots of people working together can create something really special and powerful, something that's much bigger and beyond what any individual could do on their own. And the other thing that's nice about this is that it actually mimics the way that living reefs build their structures. So, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is the biggest structure, living structure on Earth. It's the first living thing you can see from outer space. But it's built by millions of tiny coral polyps, each of which is, you know, no bigger than a, about a centimetre long. And millions or billions of these little coral polyps come together and collectively they build this ginormous thing. And so we think of our reef as like, as, as it were, an artistic response to doing exactly what the living reefs are doing. It seems like part of what it also does is restore that sense of wonder about things that are naturally occurring in nature that we see around us all the time that we might not associate looking at a head of lettuce with geometry or mathematics or marvel at the wonder of what nature can grow on a coral reef. But is there a way in which you would like to maybe introduce that to to children's education so that 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 wonder and excitement about STEM is sparked in children by doing things with their hands? I personally believe that this kind of what we call, my sister and I call, play practices, material play practices, I think this is a really powerful way to educate people, whether grown-ups or children, about mathematical subjects. But there are lots of other techniques you can do to teach mathematical principles. For instance, fractals are another great subject mathematically, which is which are very hard to grasp when you do it through formal equations. But you can build fractals out of business cards, and the technique. So it's like using a paper folding technique, but just with business cards. And any, it's very simple to learn. Anyone can learn it. This was invented by this wonderful MIT engineer, Dr. Janine Mosley. And I've worked with her on a couple of projects. And we've had people from all levels, young school children to university students to professors, participating in this. And and you learn through making in your hands what a fractal is and why it's such an important new kind of structure in mathematics. And there are lots of techniques like this. And in my view, 99% of people aren't ever going to go on to be professional mathematicians. So they don't really need to learn the equations. What is powerful for them is to learn the concepts. And, And the concepts can, a lot of concepts can be taught through making processes. 
And, and when you think about it, this kind of makes sense because if you think about how we come to math in the world, how did humans come to math in the world? Humans didn't come to it through equations. The origins of mathematics, the beginnings of all these ideas are in the world, the physical world around us. Like, where did numbers come from? I go one sheep, two sheep, three sheep, four sheep. Where does geometry come from? It begins in measuring the Nile Delta each year after it flooded. Farmers needed to know which is my land, your land. So they developed systems of measuring and that led to understanding things like angles. So our knowledge of mathematics originates in our interaction with the world. And, and what's, uh, what's a bit sad now is because we've reached a level of sophistication with our ability to do things with equations that we think that's where we have to begin and we've forgotten the fact that we didn't get to equations for tens of thousands of years. So actually I think we need to go back to the original principles, which is looking at the world around us. That's the freaking best. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> And very, very true, because you think about it, it's not like people, it's not like, you know, the ancient Greeks were around going like, okay, I just got born. Let me immediately go into a math class to figure things out. It's like, no, you were, you know, you were just living your life and, you know, you would think about things and you discuss things and you might come up with a theorem, you know, like Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> I remember that. But um, <laughs> it's not like somebody had to say that at one point. It didn't always just exist as a concept we all learned automatically. Yeah. As I was listening to that, I was thinking about all the equations that I used to know when I was in high school, that now if I was given that same textbook, I would not remember any of it. And it it really didn't stick for me. And I wonder if I had been taught in the way that she's describing, if some of these principles would have stuck in my own mind better. Do you remember that Gautier song from like 2014, somebody that I used to know? Yes. Now I'm going to be singing equations that I used to know (laughs) for the rest of the day. All right, well, let's pause this conversation and take a short break. We'll be right back. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, we're back. You know, you've been part of so many projects um, with your sister uh, that have grown out of the Institute for Figuring. So maybe if you could give us a quick rundown on the Institute for Figuring. So... I work in this with the, in the Crozier Coral Reef Project and in the Institute for Figuring with my twin sister, Christine. And we have kind of had dual lives. After we left school, I went to university to study physics and mathematics and she went to art school. So, you know, all of our lives we've kind of had this, as it were, STEAM thing going on. So for us the whole concept of STEAM, you know, science, technology, engineering, art and math, 
is been entwined into us from even since little children. And about 15 years ago, we decided we wanted to set up an organisation to introduce people to to STEAM concepts, but to do it in a way that had a kind of more artistic flair. So the Crochet Coral Reef is our most well-known project, but we've put on lots of series of lectures with scientists and I work very carefully with them to craft a lecture that will be accessible. And I always help them design some kind of activity that people can make during the lecture. So it's, it's, it's hands, everything is hands on. If you, you know, we're under a lot of restrictions about meeting and being able to do projects in person, but is there one that you're hoping to do once the world opens up again? Is there a next project that you are formulating? Yeah, there, there are two things. Um, one is, as a kind of offshoot of the Crochet Coral Reef project, my sister and I um, started collecting all our plastic trash because one of the you know, coral reefs and all marine organisms are being devastated by this tsunami of plastic trash that's going into the into the waters, into the oceans. So we thought we'd start crocheting some reefs out of plastic, but we thought we should also become aware of how much plastic we use. So for four years, we kept all of our domestic plastic trash, um, which is a mind-blowing thing to do and hideous. We're working on a big show at a museum in Germany. So the people in the city of Baden-Baden are going to collect all their plastic trash. I mean, you know, people probably do it for a week or two weeks and bring it all in. And we're going to make this gigantic plastic trash sculpture from the people of Germany. And we're very excited about that because we've, we've tried to interest many museums in this project before and everyone's really impressed. But museums are terrified about bringing garbage into the museum. But of course, that's part of the point. You know, we need to discuss what we do with our garbage. It doesn't just disappear when you stick it in the bin and off it goes. It goes somewhere. And this is a project about trying to get people to focus on the fact that plastic trash is not just their problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. I'm generating. How much am I generating? And if people could see, you know, a bunch of their stuff, and then you have to decide well, what are you going to do with it. Are you going to just send it all off to the landfill? You know, now that you know how much you create, what are you going to do with it? Wow. Ugh. Could you do it? Could you collect your trash? And I'm not, this is not being like, you know, I'm ragging on the fact that she did it. I'm just literally asking, could you do it for four years, do you think? I I would try, but I'm... I'm really scared to think about how much trash that would be. The other project that I have that I'm very excited to is something I've already begun, which is I figured out this beautiful way using drawing that you can show people why prime numbers are so special. And everybody learns in school that prime numbers are special. They're the numbers that are only divisible by one of themselves. But no one really understands what that means. And, and I, and in even, I mean, th- this definition is given to you even at university level math. And, you know, it, it's pretty hard to comprehend what does that really mean. And so I discovered some years ago this way of draw, doing little drawings to demonstrate this. And it's very, very beautiful. And, and again, it, it's like anyone can do it. You just need a 
piece of graph paper and a pencil. Anyone can do it, and you can actually get to college-level mathematics by doing these little drawings. Well, I can't wait to sign up because when you say prime numbers, my palms start to sweat again and I feel like I'm in math class. And and that's what I love about your work is that you you meet people at that perhaps, you know, old nervousness or hesitation or feeling like I don't understand it. It's beyond me. I didn't do well in that subject. You make it accessible. You make it engaging. You make it fun. You make it beautiful. And I I want to remove that own mental barrier that I have around math and science. And I think that's what I'm trying to do for everyone. Um, because the way I think about math, and I think a lot of mathematicians do see it this way too, is that Mathematics is a language. It's a language of pattern and form. Human beings are innately good at learning languages. I mean, little children innately grasp any language that they're embedded in. And and math is a language too. And I think little children have it in them. I think all people have it in them to really grasp it. It's just, unfortunately, it's the world's worst taught subject. And that's not the teacher's fault because the teachers aren't taught well and they're not supported. And, you know, we really do need to have, in my view, completely different kinds of ways of teaching about math. But I wanted to tell a little story that, and this this to me demonstrates how children have the capacities in them to, to, to do this. A few years ago, I was invited to be a, a visiting resident at, at an upmarket um, K through 12 school on the East Coast. And the most exciting thing of the week was they asked me to meet with the grade twos one afternoon. And so I said, what do you guys think about, you know, the beginning of the universe and the fact that, you know, scientists say time had to begin somewhere? And a bunch of little children just went berserk and had these incredibly sophisticated conversations. There were three little boys, one in particular, who had thought about it deeply, had you know, they could have had a conversation with a university professor, at least on a sort of conceptual level. And the teachers were all gobsmacked. They had no idea. But the thing was, all of the children who did this were boys. Not one single girl said a thing during the class. And then I went from talking to the grade twos to talking to the you know, grade 12s, the kids, you know, about to graduate. Not one of them had any interest in science at all, not one of them. And they all said that they had been turned off science and they didn't see it as relevant to society, except for computing. They understood that computing was relevant to society. But the rest of that, they thought of science as this completely abstract, humanly irrelevant activity. And so somehow between 7 and 17, something had gone unbelievably wrong. That's so sad. Ugh. I think I was more interesting at seven than I am now. (laughs) What about seven versus 17? Were you more curious? Hmm. I think I was more curious at seven. What about you? Um, I think I was equally as curious because the more, the older I got, the more I knew. But you know what? Okay, though, we are talking also about, like, teenagers and not to rag on teenagers, but when you're 17... You're just so close to being like an adult, you know what I mean? To being free. So it's like, yeah, of course, they're going to be like, no, I don't like that. <laughs> I only <laughs> like the thing that I am not allowed to have. I really uh, related to adults 
rediscovering that curiosity as they got older. And I think that's why I'm so happy that we're doing this podcast together. Mm -hmm. And it gives me an opportunity to explore these interests that I have. And I'm trying not to be intimidated by my lack of understanding, like, the panic I feel trying to explain hyperbolic geometry or the feeling that I have when she talks about prime numbers and I go two, three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen. I don't, you know, but I'm trying to not let that that feeling of intimidation um, prevent me from being curious and interested and wanting to learn more. In in my experience, most adults or many, many adults are interested in science. They just feel like when they were children, either it wasn't encouraged or they were taught badly or, you know, they just weren't given access to it in a way that was accessible to them. And and, and that is the tragedy here is that I think, and a lot of studies show that people's interest in science is very, very high. Um, you know, and, and in my view, the, the notion of, that we're an anti-science society, I think, has been kind of overhyped. I I talk to people all over the country, even in places that are supposedly anti-science, and what I find is that people are not anti-science. They feel that there are things going on in science that are frightening and worrying to them, and and that they need help getting over that certain fears but they're actually interested in the ideas. And if you can do it gently, I, I, I can get almost anybody interested in science by showing them in part that one thing is that they already have a lot more scientific understanding than they give themselves credit for. Because I think that's one of the problems that our conception of knowing about science is some very elite university professor and that nobody else really knows about science. And that's not true. Science operates in our lives, all around us, through us, in us, in our gardens, in the, look, when we look up in the sky, in our computers, all around us science is going on. You don't have to be an elite theoretical phys- physicist to have some comprehension. And, and the tragedy is that we've kind of, by putting science on some pedestal, in my view, We've made it seem remote and inaccessible to too, too many people. Where's your curiosity taken you that you never expected to go? To the South Pole. (laughs) Um, I'm very lucky to be one of a few people I know who's worked on all seven continents, including Antarctica. I was lucky enough to be taken to uh, to Antarctica by the National Science Foundation as a visiting journalist. And I was particularly lucky to be taken both to the South Pole and to a series of valleys off the coast of Antarctica called the Dry Valleys, which is the closest I've ever been to being on another planet. And that was just to get that opportunity to go to those magnificent natural wonders. And in my capacity, because I was reporting on science that was taking place down there, there's a lot of science experiments at the South Pole. And I think that's one thing that science can do. It, at least a career in science, enables you often to get to see things that most people would never get the opportunity to see. Well, 
I thank you so much for your time, um, this wonderful conversation. And, you know, I, I can now check the box of having wanted to speak to you for many years. And um, it's been such a pleasure. And I can't wait to take one of your workshops once I can. Well, thank you. It's been a delight. Let's take one last break. Hey, we're back. And guess what? You are here just in time for story time. Okay, so this is the story of Anna Atkins. She's a botanist who was blending science with artistic expression way back in the early 1800s. So she eventually created what some scholars regard as the world's first book entirely illustrated by photos. Well, it was an early version of a photo, but I think it looks pretty cool even today. Uh, She was born in England in 1799, and that would mean that somewhere in the world, Beethoven was composing his first symphony. In England, we're still decades away from women being allowed to vote or even go to college, but Anna had an unusual amount of access to an advanced education for women at the time. Her dad was a scientist named John George Children, and apparently being around him got her hooked on scientific thoughts and ideas. She became fascinated with botany, which is the study of plants. She got married, you know, typical stuff for back then. But also, she really started pursuing her interest in botany. And this is where it gets really even more interesting. By the 1800s, photography was just, 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 just becoming a thing. And Anna wanted to learn how to make impressions of plants for her research. Anna actually started learning about photographic processes. And it was ultimately something called cyanotype that she stuck with. Uh, Just so you picture what a cyanotype weighs, if you were a Girl Scout and you did that thing with blue paper and leaves, that's a cyanotype. I used to do it. So by today's standards, it looks really simple, but it's also really striking and very cool. Yes. So you take a chemical mixture and you apply it to paper and let it dry. So now the paper has become photosensitive. It cannot be exposed to light. Absolutely cannot be exposed to light. But then you put something on top of the print and Anna, she was studying algae, ferns and other plants. So she might add a species of seaweed on top of a print. Then she exposed the paper with the seaweed on top of it to ultraviolet light. Now, again, the paper is super photosensitive, so it's going to react with the light. So the color of the page changes and you end up with a blue page and this really beautiful white silhouette of seaweed. This was basically photography without a camera. Yes. So in 1843, Anna released her first volume of what she called Photographs of British Algae Cyanotype Impressions. It was the world's first photo book. She didn't make a lot of copies, though. And over the years, her images have become really historically and scientifically valuable. Today, they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we only know of around 17 original copies in various states of completedness that are actually still left in the world. I'll tell you where you can find them. There's a couple in New York City. There's one at the New York Public Library and there's one at the Met. And there's one at the British Library in London, if you happen to be in the UK. So whenever the world opens back up, you can see her original work. This was so fun. What was your favorite part of today? Getting to talk to you. Oh, oh my God. 
gosh, you're my favorite part too. <laughs> no, it's just, it's really so much fun. I so look forward to every time that we get to talk. You make me think about things in a different way. So that's my favorite part. It was also very cool hearing you interview Margaret. I thought you did a great job. Like you really know this stuff. Oh, that, thank you. It was really exciting because I went in knowing about the Crochet Coral Reef Project, but I didn't know about these other projects she has going on. And it turns out that we both also love the Museum of Jurassic Technology. I love the Museum of Jurassic Technology. It is one of my favorite places in Los Angeles. And It's so cool because some of the things in the museum are real and some of the things are fictional and you often really can't tell the difference. This is going to sound like I'm doing a bit, but it's actually true. You know who runs it is a CalArts alum. Ah! Were you guys in the same class? Just like us. Yeah, just like (laughs) (laughs) us. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon and Kimmy Gregory. Our engineers are Jordan Duffy and Brendan Burns. Our theme music is also by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.